There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. ES Audio. Hello, I'm Nick Curtis. I'm Nancy Durrant. And I'm Nick Clark. And this is what's coming up on this episode of the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. From the creators of Matilda the Musical, we review the Olivier Award-winning Groundhog Day at the Old Vic. Music and lyrics are by Tim Minchin, and Andy Carl is back in the starring role of Phil Connors. And he's an actor, a stand-up, and he played Eric Morecambe in Eric and Ernie. We'll be joined by BAFTA award winner Daniel Rigby. I mean, the inspiration came later, really, from Morecambe and Wise, because I hadn't been that much of a follower slightly before my time. I was aware of them, of course, but I wasn't so much a fan. It was through getting the part and then deep diving on the research that I just realised how completely incredible they were and consummate um, in what they did. Daniel is currently starring in Accidental Death of an Anarchist, directed by Daniel Raggett. Plus, we discuss Romeo and Juliet at the Almeida. Directed by Rebecca Frecknell, the play stars Ted Lasso's Tahib Jimo as Romeo and Isis Hainsworth as Juliet. Welcome back to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. This is our 20th episode. (laughs) (laughs) And welcome back, Nick Clark. Oh my God, I'm so glad you're back. (laughs) Back from holiday, not much theatre, unfortunately. So not a huge amount for me to discuss, but... Good to have you back. We missed missed you in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, we we definitely did. And there's a lot happened this morning there yes. is you've come back to a firestorm of, th- of theatre stories um, so I'm just back from the National Theatre Press Conference where Rufus Norris the artistic director announced a, a huge raft of very exciting productions but also not entirely surprisingly uh, that he's going to stand down at the end of his 10 year term yeah I mean um, you know worst kept secret in theatre yeah, absolutely we were sort of expecting that for we a while, were sort right? of expecting that I was surprised by how moved I was by that really oh. um, partly because yeah, I've yeah. sort of mm-hmm. um, I've reviewed Rufus's work all the way through his career mm. from very early sort of fringe productions. Um, interviewed him several times when he took over at the National. I'm personally quite fond of him. I wouldn't say we're mates, but, you know, we get on very well. When we he's see a very engaging other. presence, I think, at yeah. these conferences. And he's a really um, charismatic guy, I think. Yeah, and he's, I would say he hasn't exactly had an, an easy ride of it for a start. COVID, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that, that, that yeah. whole thing. But I think, you know, he's, had to do, he's done a lot of stuff which was sort of necessary but sometimes difficult I don't think his artistic choices have always been spot on mm. though some of them you know, there have been very notable hits over, mm. over the 10 years but I think he has successfully sort of shifted the needle of the way we think what the National Theatre is and what it's for 
Yeah. Well, I mean, in what in what way, though? I mean, what sort of? Well, I'm thinking, thinking of co-productions. He was talking today about the impact that Black Lives Matter had, and about the idea of representation in the national theatre. He's clearly made a shift there. I, I think. think he has. I, yeah. I think he has yeah, changed agreed. the climate there and made it more more sort of accessible, more reflective of the makeup of the nation. And I think particularly the whole co-production idea, mm. you know, with Sheffield theatres, with Liverpool, with Birmingham. Yeah, just um, like making it a bit yeah. more national. Making it a bit more national. The clues in the name. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And they're really beginning to fly now. Yeah. You know, maybe initially it was a bit, you know, so-so, but I think now you look at Standing at the Sky's Edge and many others, actually. Absolutely. Really and it's, I mean, it was great that he was able to announce this, on, not on, on top of not only a very exciting theatre at the National, but the fact that Standing at the Sky's Edge is going into the West End, uh, the motive in the queue is mm-hmm. going, is also worst kept secret in the world, yeah. is also going into the West mm. End, but with its cast intact, which is just a, a wonderful thing. There was a lot of warmth in the room for oh, him this good. morning, I think. I think one of the things that, you know, speaks to what you, ju- you were just talking about is the Death of England commissions that he did from Roy Williams and Clint Dyer. Yeah. Um, the first one had Rafe Spall in it, and the That's second right. one, Michael, Michael Balligan. Balligan, and that was brilliant. And now there's a third one coming called Death of England Closing Time, which features two women, Joe Martin and Hayley Squires, playing Denise, who I think must be the Death of England Delroy's character's mum and Carly the famous Carly if you've ever seen the, if you've seen the shows um, she's uh, Death of England Delroy's wife slash girlfriend and Death of sister. England <laughs> yes. baseball's character's sister yes that's right but, Wait, like, so this is the multi just... this is the uh, national uh, theatrical universe here yes yeah. yes. Yes. You, yeah. Really? yes yeah so I'm really looking forward to that and that will be you know a black woman and a younger white woman both part of the same family by marriage and there's been a lot of kind of racial discussion within that family that mm. you would have seen over the previous two plays. And I'd really love to see what Clint Dyer and Roy Williams are going to do with that. Yeah, there's loads of exciting stuff. Mm. There's Nye, uh, the new play about Anarin Bevin and the creation of the NHS, which is obviously going to have a lot of attention. With Michael Sheen. Michael Sheen. Of course, the um, obvious. He yeah, might, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you know, only Welsh actors should play yeah. Welsh characters yeah. like The Anarin only Welsh Bevin. actor who's ever allowed to do and it And now he's Michael playing Sheen. every single Absolutely, Welsh Absolutely, yes, yes, yes. He's probably you know, going to take over from Anthony Hopkins in a few years. Time yeah. with the older Welsh characters, but uh, Corey Lanus is coming in as well. So uh, excited about that. David Oyelowo, that will be really, I mean, tempting him back for that. That's such a. Oh, Ooh, yeah, that is really a bit of a clue because he's been in the States for a long time yeah, now. Yeah. Yeah. And also, like, The Confessions, a new play by Alexander Zeldin. Mm-hmm. And I loved, love his first one at the National mm. and then Faith, Hope and Charity, I thought was also absolutely brilliant. He's such an amazing playwright, I think. This one apparently is very personal. It's about oh, his really? mother and oh, about how she sort of came over from Australia and mm. built a family and found agency, was the way they described it in the in the press conference. Again, it's a really diverse, really mm. interesting season. You know, lots of, lots of things make you go oh that'll be uh, that'll be fascinating to see Bernard Albert um, new version by Alice Birch you know that's yeah one of the things that uh, Rufus Norris said at the press conference today was that um, I think it's this season he said or maybe the last season anyway 19 of the 21 t- productions recently had a living writer in the room yeah. So the, the National is much has been much more a sort of contemporary writing space. And I'm really excited about, really about Alice Birch coming in. I mean, she's just been the showrunner on Dead Ringers, where mm. Rachel Weisz played twins. Yeah. I think she was involved in Succession at one stage. I mean, not one of the major yeah. ones, but she was involved in it. Yeah. So yeah, bringing her back would be fascinating to see what she does with this. Uh, with well, especially this with the uh, Succession alum uh, Harriet Walter, who's yeah. going to be playing Bernard Albert, which is really absolutely and exciting. I love, bloody by, love Harriet. Uh, 
love yeah. Harriet <laughs> She's absolutely marvellous. It's true. And directed by Rebecca Frecknell, who will be coming to a little bit oh, later when we discuss Frex. Romeo and Juliet. Of course, and Frex. famous Frex. Do no wrong. So there's yeah. loads. There's loads more in the season. It'll be up on the on the Nationals website if you want to check it there. Loads and loads of stuff. Yeah, so yeah. exciting. We should mention the very sad news that Glenda Jackson has just yes, passed away. It is sad, but it's also. I mean, what a life! What an amazing <laughs> yeah. life! Yeah. And yeah. working right to the end. I mean, yeah. her. Her film with Michael Caine is about to come out mm. about the great oh escape. Her yeah. not that long ago, she was on stage um, reprising her King Lear from the Old Vic in New yeah. York. Before that, she was doing Three Tall Women in New York. I, that was after being out of the industry for twenty-three years. Absolutely, yeah. as, a, just, as an active just MP, an MP. Yeah. just you know, just kind of and then in theory came back and played Lear. Came back know? and played Lear. Yeah, <laughs> she won the Evening Standard Best uh, Actress Award that year, the mm. Natasha Richardson Award for Best Actress. I interviewed her. She was the most delightful person at the uh, at the awards ceremony. The, the easiest in terms of having a photo taken she turned up in an M&S frock I think she'd had a fag outside just before coming in Brilliant. which in the mid 80s is also quite good going mm. and she was just charming she had a reputation for not suffering fools gladly I mean when I met her then she she really I just wasn't did, did she, did suffer you? Yeah. Did she, she, she you? suffered me quite gladly <laughs> <laughs> whatever that says about me but yeah. but I mean look at that career starting in the 50s at RADA you know having yeah. grown up in a working class household in Liverpool Peter Brook seasons at the RSC all those, you know, those Ken Russell films, the romantic comedies with George Siegel. I mean, it's just an extraordinary career, yeah. isn't it? You know, yeah. Elizabeth II, Morecambe and Wise, she did everything. Thank you, Glenda. Thank you, Glenda. Yeah. Right, let's kick off the reviews. First up, it's Groundhog Day at the Old Vic. Or I should say, it's Groundhog Day at the Old Vic again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, it's an old gag, but old, ooh, oh, everybody was making all the old oh, gags God. about about this one. This is an adaptation of the famous Bill Murray film. It was staged a couple of years ago at the Old Vic with music and lyrics by Tim Minchin. Direction by Matthew Warchus, uh, based on the original script by Danny Rubin. And it was sort of hoped to transfer to the West End, but it went to New York instead. The New York run was cut short and then it didn't transfer to the West End and now it's back at the at the Old Vic so we are reliving Groundhog Day in much the way that <laughs> yeah. weatherman Phil Connors relives the same day over and over and over. and over again. Yeah, just to mention, actually, before we start, you can hear our interview with Tim Minchin and Danny Rubin via the link in the show notes. That was with the lovely Nick Clark. Yeah, it was a terrific interview. What did you think? I I really liked it. I'd forgotten how good it is. For an essentially light romantic comedy, the film is actually surprisingly deep and yeah. surprisingly dark. But I was surprised how much deeper and darker and more thoughtful the musical is. Really. Yeah. And that's credit not only to Danny Rubin, but chiefly to Tim Minchin, I think. You know, yeah, who, oh, just, I mean... He is really a genius, don't yeah. you think? The songs are so clever yeah. and so funny. They're really well written in the way that they're very singable, so you can hear all the jokes. Yes. You know, and which sounds like a stupid thing to say, but actually it's not always the case. You're always surprised by the next line. That's very true. It's the way he sort of colours in even fairly minor characters with them. There's the lovely opener of the second act, Being Nancy, sung by the girl who Phil Connors decides to seduce once he realises he can perfect his technique day after yeah. day after day. And that's all she is in the film, is that she's the girl he seduces, and that's all she is for the first half here. But then in the second half, she gets this amazing song talking about what it's like to be that character and then talking about what it's like to be the actress playing that character. Yeah, so exactly. It's like sort of infinite regret. There's layers and layers and layers of this. Yeah, um, it's lovely. It's a, and I think, you know what, it's a really perceptive piece of writing by a man yeah. from the point of view of a woman who's never needed to kind of find out who she is mm. because she's so attractive until she realises... 
at a point where it feels a bit too late that that's not really enough. I mean, it's it's not something you see very often. And it's I true. think it's really well observed. Yes, actually. I think so. I love the drunk song as well. When he realises there's no no sort of payoff, there's no payback, he's not going to get a hangover yeah. if he gets drunk. Oh, yeah, in so the bar with So he gets drunk in the bar with the guys. two guys. And I just love oh, the way so they good. talk about their lives. And, you know, I sometimes, I pee, I usually miss a bit. I usually yeah. get a bit on the floor, all this sort of stuff. And, and you know, you sort of get a peek into the emptiness of their lives and, yeah. how, and how hard it is. But it's an um, indication of what a good observational comedian Tim Minchin yeah, is actually yeah he's sort of going back to his roots as a comedian he's so good yeah God, the man's and there's brilliant. it's it's also the, the way he sort of works a, a joke through to its logical conclusion that there's you know in the in the film in the original script you've got the idea that he seduces um, Nancy he then sets out to seduce his producer Rita and that yeah. becomes his purpose in life and that becomes his redemption arc that, yeah you know, when he finally becomes a good enough person to win her, yeah, you know, exactly. that's when he breaks the cycle. But here there's that lovely late song where he says, I've slept with every woman in this town between the ages of 18 and 80, 90% of them between 18 and 84. And then she sings a phrase about it. And then he says, and some dudes when I was bored. Bored, yeah, exactly. It's just... <laughs> Which I just think is... really it's so thrown away. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, it really suggests that he's been there for centuries, possibly I know. now. God. What I really love, though, it's, it's got a bit of an edge. I mm. think there's this extended sequence in which he keeps trying over and over again, really quite dramatically to take his own life. Yeah. Like in so many different ways and just keeps waking up. And it's horribly funny. Yeah. It's like a bit on the nose. It's also a great piece of stage magic that, that oh, he, he dies on one part of the stage and then pops up somewhere else. I don't know how they do it. It's, they do it. I mean, I was, try, I was watching it when I was aware of what they were doing. I was watching it to try and work out how they're doing it. And sometimes you can see it, but it's so sleekly done. It's so yeah. well directed by Matthew Warchus, you know, that, yeah. that particular sequence. But the whole thing is there's quite a lot of sort of Broadway razzmatazz to it. There's quite a lot of Christmas in it, which was kind of, I mean, it's set yeah. in the winter, obviously. Yeah, so, it's got that vibe. And definitely. it's on the first hot night of the year in London so yeah. uh, that was kind of weird but um, I, mean, I just think it's great it's a great show yeah and I think it really is and I you know I think the reason it didn't do I was actually discussing with a weirdly I, I was having dinner with um, a, a New York agent on Tuesday night who happens to be my friend's son and we were talking about why it might not have done well on Broadway you know he said you know, people he knew had seen it and they really loved it, but it just it opened at the same time as like Come From Away and Dear Evan Hansen, which mm. was a huge hit. And people just didn't, you know, they don't always have the money to go to see all the things they want to see on Broadway. Yeah. Just it was just yeah. really bad timing that they all opened at the same time. Yeah. yeah. It's a real shame. It but is I a think shame. I'm so glad it's come back. I'm, I'm I glad think it. it really deserves it. I think and so. I just I want to say quickly, Andy Carl mm. coming back in the leading role brilliantly unlikable yes but also funny which is pretty much how Rita describes him yes um, yes and unlike Bill Murray actually he's got a real TV anchor face he has don't he you has. think yes, it's he's very, like sort of angular he's kind got of like sort of Jock hardly American. handsome yes that's very well put yeah, it's, yeah. I don't think it's a word but <laughs> but it works yeah. yeah it looks a bit like he's going to grow up, grow up to be Fred Ward in later <laughs> life I think uh, there's a, you're right there's a certain sort of toughness to his face and a certain ruthlessness I mean, the, the joke about it obviously is that he's a sort of minor weatherman on a fairly yeah, small exactly. Pennsylvania thinks, network who, who thinks, thinks he's that a star. he's like the biggest star in the world yeah. it's really funny and he's almost never off stage yes that's as true well it's a real feat that performance yeah, I think. it's a very demanding part shout out as well to Tanisha Spring who plays Rita the producer yeah. beautiful singing voice again in the film you don't you sort of give Rita a free pass because Andy McDowell is so charming in it but she's yeah. barely a character in the film yeah whereas here again uh Reuben and Minchin between them 
give her all the backstory you'd yeah, want to they make a rounded female character yeah I think she's she's really lovely actually mm. also one other thing I found the number inserted for Phil's old schoolmate Ned Myerson yes extremely Ryerson, Ryerson sorry Ryerson it's extremely moving yeah actually and it really took me aback I'd completely forgotten about it yeah um, they give him this sort of quite sad kind of it's stalwart really backstory it really sort of like knocked me sideways actually yeah. I thought it was really beautiful it's just one song it's got so much richness to it yeah think, fiendishly clever that song as well because it ties together the fact that he works in life insurance but has experienced so much tragedy and yeah. it's, it's it's very, 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 very smart indeed. Yeah, it's, it's really brilliant. Smart musical it's, it's a show, as I think you said in your review, worth seeing again and again. I'll and say again, it again. again. <laughs> it's worth seeing and again. again and again and again. <laughs> That's Groundhog Day at the Old Vic. Right, let's go to the ads. After that, we'll be joined by actor Daniel Rigby to chat about his role as the maniac in Accidental Death of an Anarchist. Plus, how did he feel about beating Matt Smith and Benedict Cumberbatch for that BAFTA? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, I'm Jamie Parker, and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Welcome back to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm at the Jerwood Space with Daniel Rigby, star of Accidental Death of an Anarchist. Um, so I saw the show at Lyric Hammersmith, absolutely loved it. Just for the audience, tell us a little bit about what Accidental Death of an Anarchist is and what your role is within it. Accidental Death of an Anarchist is a farce that takes place in a police station. I play a character called the Maniac, who is arrested initially for impersonating a psychiatrist but um, seizes on the opportunities presented to him to disguise himself as a judge who's conducting an inquiry into the recent death of an anarchist from the same police station and manages to get the um, police to basically incriminate themselves and make them look like absolute fools. It's lots of wigs, lots of funny voices, lots of silly faces for me. Yeah, it's by uh, Dario Fo and Franco Rame, but it's been adapted by Tom Basden, and it's very, certainly the lyric, Hammersmith, where I saw it, it was very up to the minute with a lot of references to the uh, current problems in the Met. Are you updating it further as you re-rehearse it with new cast members? Well, the transfer has been so unbelievably quick that we've not really needed to. The tweaks that we made are still relevant. We're making a couple of changes that give a slight nod to the fact that it's uh, a bit of a fancy theatre and uh, right. there's royal in the title. So we're, we're having a bit of fun with that. But on the whole, it's pretty much the same. Yeah. Right, right. I see. Um, you've been a stand-up comedian as well as an actor in your time. Are you drawing on both skill sets for this performance? There's a lovely overlap 
um, in a way with the part because the maniac, it's kind of unique. I can't really think of another play that has a character in it that has the relationship with the audience that the maniac does. Yeah. It's a constant sort of interactive relationship, which does remind me of stand-up yeah. sometimes. There's not so much direct address, um, but there is, you know, the nodding and the winking, and there are occasional intervals where there is a there is a moment or two that the maniac has with the audience directly, and it, that does remind me of of, of gigs, um, yes. that dynamic. So. Uh, do you no longer perform stand-up? Is this, is this something in the past for you, or do you still occasionally go back and flex those muscles? Oh, well, I mean, I've, I, yeah, I've not done it for absolutely ages, so yeah, I guess it's in the past I see. at the moment. It's an incredible physical performance, but also a vocal one. I was really worried for your voice. Oh, <laughs> Through the course of the performance oh, yeah sorry about that That's, no, 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 I mean I got over it do you have to sort of pace yourself through the course of it because it seemed he is a maniac and it does seem to exist on a on a constant pitch of mania yeah yeah um, I mean I did make a rod for my own back with a lot of the choices that I made in the rehearsal room and I think over the course of a 13 week run we'll see how it goes luckily I never really had a problem with my voice or, or my body either mm. there was no there was never any injury hopefully it will last but it is a kind, it's something that I have to sort of keep an eye on and modulate because it is delivered at a fever pitch which sort of feels like it's it f- feels like it supports the it supports the play doing it at that level, yeah. but it is demanding. What does it feel like bringing it back? Does it still feel fresh? It's quite a. When does the play date from? It's nineteen seventies. Yeah, it? it's nineteen seventy that it was written. It's based on a true death of a real anarchist who died in Italy in nineteen sixty nine. Right. And at the time that um, Foe was originally writing it, Fro and Rame were writing it. The inquest was in the news a lot, and he was updating the play constantly with actual information that was literally being put into newspapers on that day, and then it would go into the show in the evening and there were riots at the original production and things like that. And I think Tom, by essentially taking a kind of hatchet, because it's funny with something like that that was so fluid at its inception, yeah. has become over time kind of calcified and made a slight museum piece and that there's, a, there's now a, a text and a translation that people then perform. But Tom has done something brilliant, which is, you know, in a way been in- incredibly irreverent and changed it massively. Yeah. I think he said it in an interview recently, which sort of honours the original more than just doing it word for word as a as an adaptation. It feels massively up to date and fresh. And the, the timing of it, the fact that the Casey report came out while we were doing the run at the Lyric, which we couldn't have foreseen really, it just feels electric actually, you know, performing that kind of play that packs that kind of punch at a time like this, when it's just so in everyone's mind and everyone's sort of um, debating about the role of the police and these scandals are coming out in a kind of factory line from yeah, the Met, yeah. that, that it does feel electric. Do you prefer comedy? Are you, are you, do you feel more at home in comic roles? Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. Right. I mean, comedy's, com- com- comedy's my first love, really. I mean, mm. the only reason I ever became a performer was to make people laugh and because there's no... There's no um, educational route into doing comedy necessarily, but there is to act. You can do an acting course at a drama or apply yes. to do an acting course at a drama school. Um, that was that was you know why I ended up doing that. So yeah, comedy is definitely the first love. I have to mention your BAFTA for playing Eric Morecambe in Eric and Ernie. Um, that was 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 Eric Morecambe a, a, a sort of inspiration to you? Did he mean something to you? Was it fun to play that role? Oh, it was enormous fun to. 
play it. I mean, it was terrifying, but it was it was fun eventually. I mean, the inspiration came later, really, from Morecambe and Wise because I, I hadn't I hadn't been that much of a follower. Yeah, because um, it's, it's slightly before my time. You're only forty, aren't you? So they asked yeah. away. I mean, I caught the tail. I'm in my fifties. I caught the tail end of Morecambe and Wise. So yes, they must be before your time. Yeah, yeah. I was aware of them, of course, like, but I wasn't so much a fan. It was through getting the part and then deep diving on the research that I just realised how completely incredible they were and consummate um, in what they did so yeah that was a real joy and how hard was it to sort of turn him into a person rather than do an impression or do a sort of um you know do the the bits we're familiar with from eric Morecambe, you know the shtick yeah i don't know i don't know how conscious i was of i, I think my my the, the the bulk of the work that i tried to do was on um voice and body and finding that the, the physical changes and the vocal changes, finding a way in through that. And the fact that Peter Bowker wrote a, a brilliant script sort of provided, you know, the character and the other sides uh, to him. So I felt very fortunate to have that as the raw material. Yeah. Yes, I see. You did beat uh, Matt Smith and Benedict Cumberbatch to that BAFTA, I believe. Have yeah. you ever bumped into the bit of party and gone, ah, in your face, Cumberbatch? Um, no, no, yeah. uh, thankfully never tried that. I mean, I could give it a go, see, see how it went down. Yeah. Um, no, I've, I've, I've not. I've, I, have, I have worked with, but I did like a cameo in uh, Will Sharp's film, The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne. Oh, and, yes. Um, I, I saw him again after a, a long time, but... Uh, you know, it was it it was very nice to see him, and he's you know he's doing quite well. He's doing all right, I think. <laughs> I think Matt Smith's not doing too badly either, is yeah, he? I don't think. They're yeah, both, they're both fine. Yes, I think they're both fine. Um, just going back to your sort of theatre acting, uh, yeah. this being a theatre podcast. Actually, looking at your more recent roles, they've been some of them have had a sort of comedic bent. Obviously, you were bottom in Midsummer Night's Dream. You were Frost in Frost Nixon, playing another real person with a yeah. very sort of familiar cadence to his voice and very very uh, you know very familiar manner but also an award-winning performance as Alan Turing I see in Breaking the Code yeah which was in Manchester so I didn't catch that I'm yeah. afraid but um how was that then I, I know the play but yeah uh, I it's quite a challenge it. yeah uh, it, it was um yeah I mean I, I hadn't seen the play before and on reading it I thought blimey O'Reilly like the the challenge of doing because there are parts of it that it, it's it's a it sort of jumps about his life in a way that's quite brilliant. Hugh Whitemore, the yeah. author, he, he, I mean, he, he he wrote in a very instinctive way that it's completely non-linear, but you get presented with these these scenes from different stages of his chronology that, that feel very much like the scene you should be watching. So that part of it was great. But the challenge of doing so much mathematical, because he doesn't shy away from the more theoretical mathematics of of Turing's life and there are speeches that are about um, very complex mathematical ideas which were a real uh, yeah really hard to get your head around yes yeah. yeah so was it after that after chunks of Shakespeare and sort of serious drama was it quite nice to settle back into uh, into anarchist and as you say get, get give your comedy chops free reign yeah 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 especially something like this which just feels like a sort of all-out kind of every comedy hat you can put put on is mm. at some point you you're you know it feels like sketch work it can feel like character work it feels there's a little touch of stand-up in there it feels like such a unique a real gift yeah daniel rigby thank you very much thank you for having me thank you accidental death of an anarchist is now on at the haymarket coming up after this very short break we'll be reviewing romeo and juliet at the almeida why not give us a follow and a rate in the meantime Hi, 
Hi, I'm Marisha Wallace, and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. Right now, it's Romeo and Juliet at the Almeida. Nick and I saw this uh, at press night, and you know what? I loved it. What did you think? Yeah, I loved it, with some, with some reservations. Oh, yeah, obviously. Uh, it's weird how Shakespeare plays come in waves. Mm. So we've got a ton of Macbeths coming up. Uh, oh, yeah. We had a ton of Hamlets a few years back. It's been quite a long time since we've had a major Romeo and Juliet. Um, yeah, there was it, that one with that boy. What was his name? <laughs> Off the telly. He's in that show. Which one? <laughs> I can't remember now. Oh, damn it. Richard Madden. Wasn't he in he it? Was in what, he was in the Brenner one, that's right, a few years back. And then there was, meant to be, just before lockdown, Jesse Buckley and... Uh, oh, yes, and Josh O'Connor. Josh O'Connor show. And they did do the film. Yeah, especially for yes, the they, film, they did. They turned that they? into it was a rather film. lovely. Yeah. So it's been a while since there's been a major one. And this does strike me as a, a fairly major one. You know, mm. one that makes you see a very, very, very familiar play with very fresh eyes which is something that Rebecca Frecknell the director who you may be aware of uh, through her work on Cabaret at the Kit Kat Club and a small little play called um, A Streetcar Named Desire which had a bloke called Paul Mescal and we literally never shut up about her but so I mean it's 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 what she does. Yeah. Rebecca Franklin, isn't it? She, she new mints these very, very familiar texts yeah. to us. I mean, the thing I loved about this was that, if I think back to the Romeo and Juliet, so I saw 20, 30 years ago, they were all like 40 years old. And here, yeah. they, here they are credibly... Oh, they're so young. They're really young. They're, they're so lovely yeah. and palpably young, like teenagers surging with hormones. Mm, yeah. And you really care about them. Mm. It makes the waste of the whole thing, yeah. which I think actually Tahib Jimmo spoke about in his interview with uh, Nick Clark a couple of weeks ago. They talked to each other, so look at that on the website. It's a really nice piece. It makes that waste so much harder to bear. Yes, yeah, I agree. It's played uh, without interval. It's mm. cut, so it only lasts two hours. I didn't notice anything missing in the cuts. You know, I didn't feel the lack of anything. Um, yeah, it was funny, I think, because when you've seen loads of them, you do find yourself going, oh, I, I, that's how they've shaved off a bit. They do that thing, don't they, where they play some of the scenes, they play two scenes simultaneously. Yes. And I imagine it's not like this if you're not in a kind of critiquing headspace, but you do sort of notice that and you do think about it as yeah. a critic. But I actually really like those simultaneous scenes because it gives you a, a really strong sense of how how fast everything's happening yeah and also like just how easily it's spiraling out of control absolutely and it is a sense that i mean i i thought that there's a real sort of looming inevitability to the ending in here i don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that things do not end happily for romeo and juliet because of the speed of this and because of the sort of hectic nature of it it feels much more inevitable that that's the way they're heading the overlapping scenes suggested to me that they were almost getting a sort of premonition of bad news that they haven't had yet each of them about the other I also think the speed of it, it sort of suggests something of the madness of youth and the ease with which these young people fall in love and fight with one another. Well, yeah, I mean, again, it's it's what Tahib was saying in his interview, you know, talking about sort of growing up, he grew up in Brixton and, you know, a time when there was quite a lot of sort of youth violence happening and... It's that thing where if you've if everybody's got a knife, then yeah. somebody's going to get stabbed. It happens so quickly and unnecessarily, and you know it, it doesn't give anybody any time to diffuse anything, hmm. and it's it's so unnecessarily tragic. Yes, I think this production really brings that out actually, because it is as you said actually in your review, clearly the adults have. No idea what the kids are up to. And yeah. They're just out there roaming in the streets, like fighting with each other. Yeah. Completely and suddenly, the, the parents are like, "I'm sorry, what?" Yes. 
what has happened? How has this happened yeah. in three days? Although a thought has just come to me, because I thought there's a certain sort of sense that, that it's a society gripped by madness and that even yeah. the adults are mad. And certainly Capulet, Juliet's father, has an almost hysterical scene where he screams at her about how he's going to force her to marry Paris. Yeah. You know, this woman. Um, and you and kind of only, wonder whether that's grief. Or, yes. I mean, that's but the it's only just occurred to me as well that, that Juliet is his only surviving child. Maybe yeah. the implication is he's lost grown children rather than... Oh, maybe, in this production, yeah. that didn't occur to me while I was watching it last night. It's literally just come to yeah, me. Yeah, that's possible. Um, you know, possibly he's he's working through some other forms of grief. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That is quite a possibility. Mm. It's very stripped back. It's short. It's fast. It's on a pretty much empty stage, yeah. which always works at the Ambedia because it's such a dramatic space in its own right. Mm. The lighting is very clever. I think there's a great yes. moment where there's a sort of banks of spotlights at the back, which are just slowly turned up as the heat is turning up between characters who are about to you know to fight on stage yeah i did have some reservations about it i didn't particularly like the use of the prokofiev music to the, the 1935 ballet it's and an the, interesting choice isn't it you know it's i i it's odd it's such a well-known piece yeah without necessarily people knowing that it is from the romeo and juliet ballet because it's so well known it feels not quite earned Yes. Because yes. it took me actually until this morning when I read your piece to realise that it, I was like, what is that bloody piece? Mm. I can't remember. I knew it immediately, but I didn't make the connection. The only reason Duh. I knew was that my brother in law walked, walked down the aisle to it at his wedding, totally upstaging his bride. <laughs> Yeah, he's an actor. What was it like? I don't know, like a Klingon-themed wedding. Or something. Like, was absolutely was it? Yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, sort of Empire Strikes Back music. Or Amazing. Something. But yeah, so I, I mean, it's, it, it, it's odd because I mean, Frecknell, her work is here and is always so fresh. Yeah. And so sort of shriven of accoutrements or, or you know, sort of barnacling of stuff that's... Yeah. that's um, Although, again, that's, you didn't love the drums in Streetcar, to be fair. Oh, uh, like, did I not? Sound... Yeah. Somehow this felt, this felt strange. Oh, fair enough. Thank you. None of us like the drums in Streetcar. <laughs> I think I prefer the drums in Streetcar to the... the, yes, the yeah, in Romeo yeah, and Juliet. Exactly. Although um, it did work rather well with the movement, and actually there is what, what you can only describe as contemporary dance in this. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, which can sometimes sound a death knell when someone says it. You can do that very badly, but I thought it was done very well actually yeah the fight scenes and things like that were quite often done in that way yes and it gave a sense of drama i thought and i know that you did not like the costumes i did not like the costumes (laughs) i did not like the trousers particularly (laughs) you see i quite liked them i thought they were kind of fashion forward (laughs) i'm trying to remember how you described it it was so so funny i thought your description so something like they look like they're wearing trousers made for shorter people and possibly wearing them backwards yeah exactly and i know what you mean but i just for me i thought they were really cool <laughs> I <laughs> think it sort of reflects the absurdity of what actually what I mean it's, this may not be why but I'm slightly kind of over intellectualizing it but it sort of reflects the absurdity of what contemporary fashions were at the time but also nods to the kind of I think for me the experimentation across gender mm. lines in fashion that way that young people are starting to dress now so yeah. I really enjoyed it in that I, like respect. It. I mean Tahir Jimu looks fantastic in that flouncy sort oh, of that uh, shirt. terracotta shirt lovely that's silk really number good. with a frill it's fab but I do think inflicting pop socks and culottes on Isis Hainsworth is a bit worse I will really. grant you they weren't <laughs> They weren't great. I like the idea of it. Yeah. But yeah. I just let's talk about them briefly. Yeah. Like Isis Hainsworth and Tahib Jimmo were just brilliant. Yeah. I loved her stroppiness. Mm, the way yeah. that she speaks to her nurse is so teenage. She's just like, I'll be there by and by. Yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> really yes, cross. Yes. And he is just like the sort of 
I don't know, he comes across as a sort of young man you'd be heartily relieved to be brought home by your he daughter get, or he son. He starts you know? off very sort of suave, doesn't yeah. he? And very sort of sophisticated and easily seems like the most mature of yeah. his dad. But sweet But very well. sweet as well. And then he is not sideways and he too is deranged I think just by this sudden bombshell of love and all the sort of tragedy that that sparks off yeah really. exactly um, and you know in his sort of rash act out of grief with the death of Mercutio yeah. murdering Tybalt and then his response to that you know he's appalled yeah. at what he's done yeah you can really see that I found them both really quite moving yeah it's a weird thing to, to sort of um, celebrate but the deaths here are really good oh my god they're such good and deaths the, I mean, the, the knife deaths horrid. are horrible Juliet's death is really really powerful yeah um, so the, but there's the time also, she takes to summon up the courage to stab herself yes is, is so painful there's also a sort of juxtaposition here I think um, in that again I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that um, Romeo brings a gun to the knife fight with yeah. Tybalt and you see how easy that is for him yeah that the knife deaths are hard but suddenly he's got a gun in his hand he's on the other side of the stage and he can just yeah it just, just, gun it just does down. it yeah, yeah exactly it yeah. gives you that one level of um mm. of separation and for all that this is hectic and i think you know sometimes there are times when the some scenes feel a little hurried there are some beautiful moments of quiet and understatement in it when romeo and juliet wake up after their first night together before she kills herself at the end there's i yeah. think a lovely moment of communion with his corpse i mean yeah. she she wakes to find him dying which is yeah. horrible yeah but it's awful there's a lovely but just moment. when she oh when she wiggles her foot and yeah. you could hear yeah. people in the audience going like oh no yeah it was just really really sad yeah i just want to make a mention of jack ridderford yes as mercutio I wasn't sure at first mm. how I felt about it. There is something of the young Rick male about him. <laughs> yes, Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's sort quite of slightly OGT. young ones. Yes. Yeah. But actually, I think he pulls it off. It's not an easy... It's kind of a... It's a sort of showboaty role. Yeah. And he does it in a showboaty way. Yeah. Because Mercutio is a showboaty sod. Yeah. But I think it works. I think it does. And I think, and like you, I had my doubts early on, but I think if the thesis of the production is that the society is mad and deranged in some way, then yeah. Mercutio has to be yeah. that bit more mad and yeah, a bit yeah. more sexually obsessive. And yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really, really excellent production of this play. I was dreading it a bit because it's so bloody sad. Yeah. But I was really glad to have seen it. Yep. And that's it for this week's Theatre Podcast. Thanks to our guest this week, Daniel Rigby. You can find all our interviews just below this episode, such as with Eddie Izzard, Jamie Parker, Cato Flynn and many more. You can find all our reviews and news online at standard.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And thank you as always to our producer, Rachel Abbott. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week.